There's three things that are in your bulletin we'll talk about. God meets us on our turf, but on his terms. The second thing we'll see in here is that the way into his kingdom is by transformation, not reformation or not behavior. And the third thing is that new birth comes at another's expense. So why don't you stand up? We'll read the passage. It's a story, so it's a little bit easier to stand up for a little bit longer of a passage. This is Jesus talking to a religious guy named Nicodemus. Uh, John is, is setting up the story. He says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. He was a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus at nighttime, and he said to him, Rabbi or teacher, we, we Pharisees, we know that you're a teacher come from God, because no one could do the, the signs you're doing unless God was with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus is probably like, wait, what? I didn't say anything about that. Why did you just say that? I was coming to tell you, you're good. You're one of us. You're a teacher. Why did you just respond to that? Nicodemus asks, uh, well, how can a man be born again when he's old? Can he enter it a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, Unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Because that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Don't marvel that I said this to you, Nicodemus, that you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it wishes. You hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to them, How can these things be? Jesus answered him, Are you, Nicodemus, are you the teacher of Israel? And you don't understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you don't receive our testimony. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world, or more literally, for this is how God loved the world. He gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only son of God. And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light. Why? Because our works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and doesn't come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, on an appropriately breezy, windy night uh, walking in here, we pray that your spirit would blow. We pray that your wind would blow. We've just heard some things that seem hard to understand. They seem almost cryptic, the way you talk. But we pray that you'd bring understanding. We pray that you would uh, bring birth. We pray that you would refresh us. 
Use your power for our sake, we pray, since we have no power. We ask this in your name. Amen. You can take a seat. Thanks. So Anna and I have a friend in Colorado named Jory and a cat noser. And uh, Jory is, um, she's American, she's Anglo, she kind of looks like Anna, but she grew up in Hong Kong. And she spent, I think, around the first uh, 17 or 18 years of her life growing up in Hong Kong. And so literally uh, all the way up until college, um, she was just steeped in Chinese culture, uh, a Chinese way of eating and talking and thinking and buying and selling and relating to time and all of that stuff. And she told us the story one time of, uh, she came back to the States just before she went to college to kind of get her feet on the ground and get set up before she moved up to, um, to Boulder to go to college. And she told us about this time that she went shopping at the mall. She went into a Dillard's and she's like going through all the clothes on the clothing rack. And she picks out a pair of pants that she likes and she takes it up to the cashier at the little Dillard's counter. And she says, I'll give you 20 bucks for those pants. And the lady's like, ah. And she starts ringing up, and she's like, no, no, I'll give, I'll give uh, 20 bucks. What do you think for those pants? And the lady's like, what do you mean? She's like, I'll give you $20 for these pants. And, uh, and the lady's like, well, ma'am, uh, I don't know what's going on here, but like, you've got to pay what's on the tag. And uh, Jory at this point is thinking, man, this lady's good. She hadn't budged an inch. It's like a really hard negotiator. So she's like, okay, I'll give you 25 And the lady's like, um... What's happening? Like, it says $39.99, ma'am. You have to pay what's on the tag. This isn't like a flea market. She's like, okay, $35. And she's like, what, what are you doing? It's, it's $40. And, uh, and Jory goes, well, she's not going to give, and I really want the pants, and so I'll pay you $40. And so she pays her the money, and the lady's just, like, nervously laughing, like, what is going on here with this crazy lady? Her friends were with her. Jory's friends were with her, and they're, like, hiding in the changing closet at this point. She's bargaining over a pair of pants at Dillard's. What was going on here in this situation? Jory was coming to Dillard's, was coming to that cashier on her terms. She didn't know any better. She was, I mean, she spent the first 20 years of her life in Chinese culture in Hong Kong where it's a bartering culture, negotiating culture. Everything has, every, every price can be negotiated. Taxis, hotels, pants, whatever. You go back and forth and you arrive at the middle ground. Jory gets to America and she just thinks that's how everybody does business. So at McDonald's, she's offering him 50 cents or Dillard's, $20 for a pair of pants. The problem is, subconsciously, even without being aware of it, she is coming, she's approaching everybody here on her terms, not their terms. And it, it just doesn't work. You approach people on your terms. It's such a situation like that, that um, one in the mall or at Dillard's. What results is confusion, and it's kind of a lost in translation moment. You're like, what's going What are you talking about? Like, it says this. Why are you talking about this? So confusion results, frustration results, but it just doesn't work. Someone ends up staring at you like, what are you doing? Just like they did with Jory. That's what happens when you come to someone else on your terms. Now, uh, there's obvious situations where we come to people on our terms uh, that are kind of obnoxious or abrasive. You might have a roommate and you're like, yeah, I'll do this, but only if you do that. And it's right up front. You're very aware of the terms you're bringing to the table or a dating relationship, right? You're like, well, you know, yeah, I'll go out on a date with you if blah, 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 blah. 
But in, in, in Jory's situation and in our daily lives, it's so subtle, it's so subconscious, we're not aware of it at all. And we do this with our roommates, with our boyfriends, our girlfriends, our parents. You know your parents do it with you, right? There's terms attached to everything. Do this and then we'll do this or do this or else. They bring their terms and they force them on you too. And so we bargain, we negotiate, we try to find some middle ground. And we do it with God too. All of us do. It's what I was alluding to uh, before we read the passage. All of our hearts have a default setting of... I come to you with my terms. Often they're subconscious. We call these expectations too. What does it mean to relate to someone on your terms? It means you're the one who doesn't budge or adjust or change or adapt. The other person does. Right? That's what it means to relate to someone else on your terms. They do the changing. They bend. They give in. They lower the price. You dig in your heels and stay right where you are. That's what it means to relate to someone else on our terms, to insist on our terms. Now, here's the, here's the deal with the passage. Nicodemus is coming to Jesus Christ, a man who at this point in his life and his ministry has claimed divinities, claimed to be God in flesh. He's claimed to be the promised Messiah, the King, the rescuer of Israel, but also of all humanity. And here's Nicodemus, a religious teacher, and he's coming to Jesus on Nicodemus' terms with a posture of, I'm not budging, you budge. I don't move, you move. I don't change, you change. My terms. Maybe Jesus will meet me in the middle. Nicodemus is probably coming to Jesus to kind of work out some arrangement like, hey, you're one of us. You're a teacher too. I'm a religious authority. I'm a teacher. I I have a lot of respect in the community. I get the sense you do too because all these magic tricks and things you're doing, these miracles, something's going on. You obviously have some kind of a power thing going on here. So Nicodemus is probably trying to come make some kind of alliance or at least put Jesus in his place. How do we know that? A few different ways of how Nicodemus is coming to Jesus on his terms, on Nicodemus's terms. Nicodemus is a super respected, credentialed, older, um, religious authority in the town. John says he's a ruler of the Jews. The fact that he is a ruler, that Jesus calls him later the teacher of Israel, which means the guy who's climbed the ladder, he's the department head of the religion department. He's the, he's the, uh, he's the cardinal of the church, not the little priest. He's the, he's the pope or the cardinal. He's climbed the ladder. He's arrived. This guy's paid his dues. He's earned his stripes. He's made it. Everybody in the community would have looked at Nicodemus down the pew in church or you know, out in the community and said, man, that guy's made it. His life's so tidy, so in order. That's who Nicodemus is. Now, how do we know again that he's coming to Jesus on his terms? Well, he comes... Uh, he doesn't come kind of in a, in a humble posture. This isn't a, this isn't a genuine seeker. This isn't someone coming to Jesus saying, I'd actually really love to know more about what you're talking about when you say that you know, I'm dead in my sin and you've come to make me right with God again. That's not what Nicodemus is doing here. Nicodemus is coming in the, in the cloak of darkness. He doesn't want this to be known. There's some sense of embarrassment or shame in being seen with Jesus, or maybe he doesn't want his buddies or other people in the town to see him with Jesus. And so he's he's somewhat ashamed uh, of this encounter. 
He wants his social standing to remain intact. That's, he doesn't want to budge. He doesn't want to give. He doesn't want to have to make any changes to his life. He wants Nicodemus' life as it's been set up to continue on autopilot with no adjustment. So I'm going to go to him at night because if someone saw me talking to Jesus or if Jesus you know, made a scene out of it, maybe that's the change. How else do we know? Nicodemus says this thing that you might have missed but is actually pretty arrogant. Verse 2. This man, John says, comes to Jesus by night. John makes a point of telling us, as we just talked about. And he says to him, Rabbi, we know, we know that you are a teacher. Who's the we? The we is the other, the other priest, the other Pharisees, just like Nicodemus. And he's like, okay, hey, rookie, hey, amateur. You know, we're the ones who kind of, when we say you've arrived, you've arrived. When we say you're legit, then you're legit. We have noticed you. Shouldn't you feel so special, Jesus? Right? It's like in a sorority or fraternity setting during rush. Like, hey, I noticed you. You should feel awesome. Like, we know your name. Nicodemus is trying to lend Jesus credibility. He's trying to let his authority, Nicodemus' authority, his prestige rub off on Jesus and say, hey, we're buddies, right? How else do we know? That Nicodemus is flattering Jesus. He uses this term rabbi. He comes to Jesus. He, 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 he kind of he wants his authority to rub off on Jesus, but he's flattering him. He's hiding, and he hides behind these silly little questions. It's silly. It's silly, and it's supposed to sound silly to you that Nicodemus is asking questions like, Well, how can a man who's old climb back into his mother's womb and be born again, Jesus? Nicodemus isn't an idiot. And he's not like taking the bait like, oh, geez, how does that happen? Help me, work me through it, Jesus. He, he's toying with Jesus. He's pushing, he, he's procrastinating, he's avoiding, he's evading. Have you ever used questions to avoid a hard conversation? I've done it. I mean, I think this week I caught myself doing it. There was a, there was a topic I didn't want to talk about with a person. And so I'm going about, oh, how's this going? How's that going? Oh, did you hear about this? I'm using questions as an offensive strategy to avoid the elephant in the room. Have you done it? See some smiles. I think I'm not alone here. Nicodemus is doing that whole game. He is pushing God away with silly questions that aren't legitimate. He's evading the elephant in the room, which is, did, did you hear what Jesus just told you, Nicodemus? I don't care if you're the cardinal or the pope or the priest or the, or the person who's never been to church. You must be born again. Nicodemus is not engaging in the substance of the conversation. He is running from it. That's how we know that Nicodemus insists on coming to Jesus on his terms, not submitting himself in humility to Jesus' terms. That's, that's what happens here. John kind of explains himself later on in the passage. I'll just make quick reference to it. You remember the stuff about the light and the darkness? Why does Nicodemus come in the light? Why is he acting fishy in all these ways? Nicodemus loves being in control of his own life. Nicodemus loves his own autonomy. He loves not having God mess around with the, 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 the tranquility and the order and the predictability of his life. John says those, uh, the light has come into the world, but men loved darkness. Why? Because darkness hides your tracks. Darkness lets you be invisible. 
Darkness gives you the sense that other people can't see me, God can't see me, and therefore they can't mess up the awesome thing I got going. That's what Nicodemus is up to here. The last thing is perhaps maybe the most insulting. He dismisses Jesus as merely a teacher. Jesus is not a man who's been walking around saying, I'm a teacher. Jesus is a man going around making bold claims and backing them up. Even Nicodemus said, I see the signs that you've been doing. Nicodemus is not a believer in Jesus. He doesn't buy anything this man's saying at all. But Nicodemus himself, as a a non-believer, is acknowledging there's something going on here. I know you must be of God because of the signs you're doing. This isn't isn't one of his faithful disciples saying, oh yeah, yeah, he's God. This is a, a, a diehard rejecter of Jesus saying... I see these things. I know something bigger is going on here than meets the eye. But he dismisses Jesus as a teacher. Why? Because if you label Jesus a teacher, he stays out of your business too, right? Uh, There's a difference in something like a teacher and a parent. A parent can get up in your business. A teacher can't. We can put up boundaries. We can drop a class. We can not turn in a test or we can like whatever. We can cram it the night before. We can put up boundaries to keep a teacher a little bit at bay around our lives. But someone like a parent or if you're in the army like a general or an authority above you, they have authority over you. They can tell you what to do. They can enforce changes on you. Nicodemus dismisses Jesus as a teacher because teachers are tame. Teachers can't make claims over you. Teachers can't have authority over you in a total way. And Nicodemus and you and me like to label Jesus anything, anything but king, anything but savior, anything but master. In our heart of hearts, right? C.S. Lewis has a famous quote, maybe you've heard it. He says, he's picking up kind of mid-argument, but he says, I try to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus, which is, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. No, 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 Lewis says, that's the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil himself. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else he is a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us come... Uh, But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us, and he did not intend to. Jesus doesn't let Nicodemus get away with any of this stuff. Did you notice this? That's why the conversation is so confusing. We're like, Nicodemus says A, Jesus says X. We're like, why didn't you say B? It's not really a conversation. It's two people speaking past each other. Because Jesus won't play ball. I love it. It's good news, by the way. Jesus won't play ball. He won't budge. He's like the cashier at Dillard's. What are you doing? 
it's 39, no, no, I don't understand. What's going on, Nicodemus? What are you doing trying to, no. You must be born again. Deflect, deflect, deflect with questions. You must be born again, Nicodemus. I don't understand. How could this be? You must be born again, Nicodemus. Teacher, teacher, teacher. No, 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 no. Lord, Savior, Rescuer, God. That's the claim that Jesus is making. Here is why Jesus is doing that to Nicodemus. And perhaps you've started to read yourself into the passage and see how this meets you and me in the way that we try to, we come to Jesus on our terms, on our tidy little terms. We label him anything but king, anything but Lord. Because any label but Lord lets us go about our business unscathed in a sense, or still in control, still God. Jesus insists that we meet him on his terms. He insists. Uh, Tim Keller pointed this out. I I would not have noted this on my own, but he he noticed, uh, look at the length of Nicodemus and what Nicodemus has to say here. Jesus is systematically shutting Nicodemus down. He is dismantling Nicodemus before our very eyes. The first time Nicodemus speaks, there's 30 words. The second time Nicodemus speaks, 20 words. The last time Nicodemus speaks, four words. And in the next 17 or so chapters of the Gospel of John, you don't hear from him again. And Jesus keeps coming back at him with the same stuff. And he dismantles his questions. And he even, he even says the emperor has no clothes. He says, are you the teacher of Israel? How did you get through all of that education and not know that this is how God would save his people? By grace, not by work, not by pedigree, not by how you grew up, not by what your parents are. Not by how hard you try, not by how devoted you are, not by how bad you feel for what you did, but by mercy. That is what Jesus insists we see before we move on. And to put it in another way, you can say this. This is a big, this is a big um, insight for life. On your deathbed, what I'm about to say will be one of the most profound things you ever hear. If you have eyes to see it, hear it. You and I have no leverage over God. Zero. We don't hold any cards in this card game of life between us and God. We have no aces in the hole. We have no loopholes. We have no escape routes. We don't call the shots. We're not in control. When it comes to our relationship with God or being made right with God or put back on good terms with God, we have our hands on no levers or little knobs or dials. We have no control over it. And Jesus says it is essential that you see this. This was the thing that began to get my attention before God breathed on me right after college and brought me to life. It was, the, it was the reality that I don't have any aces in the hole to throw out on God and say, oh, but what about that? I imagined that worst case scenario, I can live my life, my Lord, on my terms. And at the last moment, right before I die, I can say, oh, God, please save me. I believe in Jesus. I believe in God. That was my ace in the hole. I, I'm not kidding you. I know it sounds silly. I believed that. That was my ace in the hole. God's a nice guy. I can throw that baby on the table at the very last breath of my life and I'm in. Do you see what I was doing? 
I, little Ben Coppage, thought I had leverage over the almighty, eternal, living God. That I had a little card I could throw down and manipulate him and coerce him and box him into a corner. How arrogant. Do you see that? Maybe you can, you can have fun at my expense, but do you see how stupid that is? How arrogant, how silly, how tragic? Thinking that I have leverage over God. Or because I haven't done X, Y, and Z in my past, I have leverage over God. Or because I was raised this way and I'm not like all of these people over here, I have leverage over God. Or because I'm more committed and more devoted and more spiritual and I've had more spiritual experiences than other people, I have leverage of God. Jesus dismantles all of it. He has nothing to do with it. He throws it back in our face. Because if he listened to all of that, if he listened to it, if he played ball with that nonsense, you would die in your sins, condemned. Because there is no salvation in that. Jesus says his terms is that you must be born again. You must be born again. Think about it. It's a fantastic metaphor. How much control did you have on your first birth? Did you decide the day you'd be born or the mother and father you'd be born to or or the way you'd be born or the circumstances of your birth? You got nothing and contributed nothing and I contributed nothing in that. It happened to me. Jesus is begging with the metaphor, how much control then do you have over your second birth? It is not something you can coerce or manipulate or box God into a corner and say, see, you got to do it, you got to do it. And in this way, God's grace, this new birth, humbles all of us. And it gives hope to those of you who didn't grow up in a Christian home or knowing anything about the Bible. Because it means your neighbor who did grow up in a Christian home in the Bible, you're on equal footing. They don't have a leg up on you. Nor does the Myers-Briggs person who's a super big touchy feeler and like just feels like he's got a direct line to heaven and always feels experiences from God. No further along than you are. Jesus says to the religious elite, to the prostitutes... To the tax collectors, all alike, you must be born again to enter or to see the kingdom of heaven. Nobody has a leg up on anybody else. Christianity, uniquely, is a humbling religion, if you want to call it a religion. There is no other religion that will humble you. Why? Because it's about you and your effort and your work. And you will eventually either feel condemned by the others who are further along than you, or you will feel superior to them and proud and boastful over them. Right? You will either feel crushed and competed against, or you will feel arrogant, proud, boastful, and better than everybody else. That's every other way man is fabricated to get back to God. This is the gospel. The gospel pushes you down. It humbles you. And it says every person born in the jungle or Iran or Canada or here a thousand years ago or a thousand years from now is on equal footing. You must be born again. Quick asides, this means none of your friends are beyond the reach of God's mercy. None of them, right? Because they needed, if you're a Christian, they need the exact same thing you got. Why would they be further away from God's mercy than you? And this means nobody, not a single one of your friends, no matter how good they are. I had some amazing friends in college, better than me, more moral than me, more loving than me, remembered more birthdays than I did. None of those friends, none of those guys were beyond the need of new birth. 
This is good news, friends. Everybody is on equal playing field here. And Jesus doesn't have any of this boasting and trying to get our way back to him. The last two points we've almost already proved and set up. The way into the kingdom is by transformation, not reformation. Reformation is try, 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 get better, get better, get better, get better. Reformation is New Year's Eve religion. Man, this year I want to do better in this way. It's not that that kind of stuff's bad, but when you, when you bring God into that equation, I'm going to try harder, I'm going to moderate more, I'm going to stop doing this, I'm going to start doing that, so that God will, so I can get closer to God. That's reformation. That is not the way to the kingdom. That is a dead end. It's a locked door. The way into the kingdom, Jesus says, is transformation. It is new birth. It is a new nature. It is a new spirit planted in you. I'm not making this up. Jesus says it. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. He's talking about two categories of nature. Born of the flesh, dead in your sins. Born of the spirit, alive in Christ. Those are the two categories for humanity. Everybody. Doesn't matter your religious or not or whatever. Dead in sins, born in the flesh, or alive in Jesus. Born to new life. Tim Keller has a, uh, an illustration he used. I obviously... Um, was very helped by him in understanding this passage. He, he says, if you have an apple orchard and you, let's say next year, you're sick of apples, you want peaches. Like next year, I want a big crop of peaches. You can't fertilize your way towards a big crop of peaches or prune your way towards that or water your way towards that. What has to happen if, you own, if you're an apple orchard owner and you want peaches next year? A new nature. You need a new plant. Someone's got to come and dig up all those old things and plant a new tree with a new nature that produces peaches. Jesus is saying, do you want to know God? Do you want to be alive? Do you want to be free from sin and not a slave to those habits? Do you want to love people? You must be born again. Your nature must change. Apples can't become peaches. I must come in and take out that old heart and put in this new heart that will bear this new fruit. That is what he says must happen. And you cannot change your own nature. And this is where we end. Grace, the mercy and the power of God must change your nature. It's the only thing that can change your nature. It's the only thing that can make an apple tree become a peach tree. It's the only thing that can make a spiritually dead person a son of the living God or a daughter of the living God forever. It's the only thing that can resurrect a dead soul and make you death proof. It's the only thing. That's what he says is this new birth. It's, a, it, it's new birth that comes from God's mercy and his power. You know, earlier I said, you can't, how much control did you have over your first birth? You can't make it happen. You didn't decide. You might have heard me talking and said, well, well, this sucks because if God's in control, if he's the one who has the leverage, he holds all the cards, then I guess I'm screwed. I thought that too. Except I forgot the very character and nature and goodness of God. What does Jesus say in the verse that you all knew before you came into the room? Look at how God has used his power. Look at how he has used his grace on sinners' behalf. 
He says, just as that snake was raised up on a pole, so also the Son of Man must be raised up so that everyone who looks to Jesus will be saved, will never die, will live forever with God. He's talking about this thing in Numbers 21 in the Old Testament where the Israelites, because of their own stupidity, had been grumbling and rebelling against God. God sends these serpents to, as an expression of his judgment on his people for their lack of faith, lack of trust in these serpents. If they bite you, you die. So God sends these serpents out amongst Israel and he tells his, his, his man Moses, Moses, lift up this bronze serpent, make a bronze serpent, lift it up. And if anybody looks to the bronze serpent, he will be healed. He will not die. Stories in Numbers 21, if you want to look it up. Jesus is saying, just like that bronze serpent, in the midst of the judgment of God, God has raised one up on your behalf, for your sake, and merely by looking to him will deliver you from that judgment. Merely by looking to him will heal you. That's, if you want to know how to know God, that's how you know God. You receive the gift, the person, the work of Jesus, which is finished and offered to you freely. Is that without effort? Is there nothing for you to do? I'll end with this illustration. New birth comes at another's expense. I was there for all three births of my kids, Eli, Addie, and Noah. And there's one sense in which, from Eli, Addie, and Noah's perspective, they contributed nothing to their birth. They had no control over it. It happened to them. But in another sense, their new birth came directly at Anna's expense. Because I was with her. When we get to the hospital at like 11 a.m. and you're there until 3 in the morning when labor really starts and you start pushing. I saw the pain. I saw the agony. I saw the blood. I saw the lengths she went to to deliver our three kids into this new life. My kid's first birth and your first birth was entirely at the expense of another. You simply received the benefit of what your mother did for you. And your second birth, your birth into the kingdom of God, your birth as a son or a daughter of God, a grace-bought, mercy Washed son or daughter of God is entirely at the expense of another. All you do is receive the benefit. You did nothing. He did everything. All you do is receive it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that God so loved this world this broken, rebellious, godless, secular world that all of us are a part of. You so loved it that you met us on our turf, but not on our terms. You met us on your terms, which are mercy, which is free grace. We pray, Jesus, that even tonight, just as the wind blows outside, the wind would blow on us that the lights would come on, that just as Nicodemus was later converted in his life, and even John records it later on in his gospel, we pray that we too would taste this new birth. And for those of us who have it, Lord Jesus, remind us 
that when you held all the cards, when you had all the leverage over us, when you had all the control over us and we had none, you used your power, you used your leverage, you used your control to heal us, to save us, to mend us. We pray that we would love you and trust you all the more because of that. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.